from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. We are in studio for another lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. I am right this moment live on Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok taking listener questions. I am here with my production staff of KC over there in the booth and Rob next to me. Rob, what do you say, man? We've been at this since early this morning, and yet you sound as if you were in a bar at 10 o'clock at night. You are a pro, my friend. Well, it's actually... I usually in a bar at 10 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, but here I am with you. <laughs> One of those guys. I'm teasing. Wherever you are checking in from today as you listen to the Badass Counseling Show, be it Kamas, Washington, Belgium, Wagga Wagga, New South Wales, Ville Platte, Fiji, or even very close to my heart, Lake Cormorant, Minnesota, Wherever you are checking in from, it is so great having you here. My production team and I, we just talk about how much we love getting viewer, uh, listener questions and how much we enjoy putting it out there and trying to you know, bring a little love out into the world and, and help whatever small way we can uh, help folks uh, get some resolution and get some uh, help in life. So we're going to just dive right in to the questions. As I said, I am live across three platforms and I've got uh, questions scrolling in front of me as we speak. And so one of the ones that came up earlier and uh, before we started this show, I sort of get people queued in on the different sites um, and see, to have them check in and so forth. One of the questions that got thrown in front of me right away, and I said, bring that question back. And it's not coming up right now, but I'm going to go back to it because it was a short one. And uh, the question was simply this. The question was, Sven, what do you think of tattoo therapy? That's an interesting question. I'm going to be very, very honest with you. I've never heard that question before. I've never gotten that on the show. Um, I've never had it come up in a counseling session as tattoo as therapy. However, that being said, my stepdaughter um, is uh, in art school and, and about to graduate and preparing to be a tattoo artist. Her very, very, very closest friend is a gifted, brilliant tattoo artist. As you know, I have tattoos. I have a great, my all-time favorite quote from uh, uh, the writer Joseph Campbell, a, sec a section of it on my left arm, on my right arm. I have my son's name, and on my hand, I have the grand Scandinavian word uh, skull, which my Viking ancestors used to be their battle cry as they were rushing in to destroy their enemies. And that skull basically means at the end of this battle, we're going to drink from their dead fucking skulls and then release their spirit to Valhalla. Um, so what do I uh, think about um, tattoo therapy? Here's what I know, and that is it can be highly therapeutic. For many, it is a cathartic experience of beginning to name themselves, finding their own voice, and naming themselves by getting visual representation, creating the body that represents the spirit inside, the soul inside. Um, and for many people, it can be a highly traumatic event. 
And not, and I don't necessarily mean in a bad way. I mean what it can conjure up. And so the great tattoo therapists, the great tattoo artists are ones who are creating a safe space because very often while tattooing, and I've had enough myself and I, I've had some great tattooers and I've learned that there was actually an exhibit, Rob, at uh, the um, New York State Museum, was it? In New York City uh, on the Upper West Side. And I remember uh, my girlfriend and I went and we took my stepdaughter and her good friend who were, uh, on the history of tattooing. And it was fascinating, specifically history of tattooing in New York City. And there he had live tattoos uh, going there and so forth. So uh, tattooing is therapy. If, if being with my dogs can be therapeutic, for me, if being out in the woods can be therapeutic, it cleanses my soul, right? If a great meal with dear, dear friends can breathe life into me, if my bike rides that I take, a little 13-mile bike ride loop, not a big deal, but can make me free, feel free and happy and alive, then absolutely tattoo can tattooing, getting tattoos can be therapeutic. I wear tattoos because I like having visual representation of who I am. And most of my tattoos are words, not a lot of pictures. And I even believe for me personally, and I'm gonna share something very personal with you guys, that if you were uh, behind me in line at Starbucks in the summer and I had you know just a just a tank top on or something, you would see two of my tattoos. One, which is the only visual representation I have, or, or a pictorial representation, and it's from a woman that I was with who I loved very much, and it's a butterfly, and I used to call her my butterfly. And I actually got that tattoo after the relationship. It was a tattoo of her after the relationship, to which if that person, if I were my client, I'd say, well, was it a desperate act to try to win her back? Well, I'm gonna put a tattoo on me of you to try to win you back. No, I had actually broken up with her. So I got a tattoo of a visual representation, a pictorial representation of a butterfly of her after I had broken up with her. Well, why the fuck would somebody do that? Makes no sense. And my response is simply this. She never fully believed that she was loved. And I wanted to do as a gift to her, even though the relationship was done, I wanted something so fucking asinine that she couldn't help but see what fool would do. Why would somebody do that? Holy shit. He must have really loved me. Yeah, I did. And you fucked up. You know, I loved you and I adored you. And, and so that was my gift to her. Then I have another one uh, for my present girlfriend uh, who grew up in the Bronx and it says, you know, uh, my Bronx badass, and then it says, you know, her name on it. Um, and here's the thing. Most people say, well, that's just fucking stupid, right? That is like the epitome of dumb. <laughs> to which I respond, really, let's, let's just very briefly, and I know I'm going on a slight cul-de-sac here, right, off the main boulevard, but it's a fun little cul-de-sac. So will you go with me? Can we just very briefly go into the cul-de-sac? Here's my logic to the notion that it's dumb. Most people, the underlying thinking is you don't get, and I'm not selling this for anybody else. I realize for most people, it's insane. I am in no way selling that you should get a tattoo at all. I don't really give a shit. It's your life. Do what you want. It's live, man. You want it? Don't want it? Who cares, right? Nor am I saying you should get one of a partner or a lover. I don't care. If you want to, do it. But here's my thinking. People, basically the thinking is don't put somebody's name on you. In other words, because what if you break up is the thinking, right? In other words, don't ever do something that might outlast the relationship. Huh. 
Well, let's think about something. By that logic, don't ever have children. Because what if you get a divorce? And I guarantee your children are going to live a fuck ton longer than my fucking tattoos are. So by that logic, don't ever do anything that might outlive the relationship. Well, that's just, that doesn't make sense. But that's not really it, is it? See, for me, and, you know, people will say, well, how would you like it if you, you know, you're dating some girl and, you know, Bruce is tattooed on her calf. For me personally, I wouldn't give a shit personally. But here's the thing. So many people are, would be afraid in that case of what is, 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 you know, on their body and, oh, that scares me. You know, maybe she's still in love with Bruce. To me, it's not the marks on the skin that you should be afraid of. It's the marks on the heart that you can't see. That's where the real shit's going to go awry. It's the scarring, the markings, the colorings, the fadings that you can't see inside that maybe that person hasn't dealt with. Shit, she may have Bruce written on her fucking, you know, calf, but that doesn't mean she's still in love with him. But I can't see what's still written on her heart. We just taped an episode of the Badass Counseling Show, one of the counseling episodes where I'm counseling someone. And there was talk about an ex uh, who uh, was still in love with and angry at and hurt by the person uh, he had been married to for 30 years. And she left him and it's now five years later and he's still angry and he's still emotionally charged. Well, guess what, dipshit? You can't have a good relationship if you still have one foot in that, in all your emotions of your past relationship. But here's the thing. Here's a last point, then we'll drive out of the cul-de-sac, we'll get on the main boulevard and it'll be a 45 mile an hour zone and we're gonna go 70, all right? And here's the last point. Really what it boils down to is getting a tattoo of someone you love is fucking stupid. That's just the basic thinking, right? You're, you look like a fucking idiot. And my response to that is, and we spend so much of our lives terrified of looking like a fucking idiot, don't we? Terrified of looking stupid. We spend so much of our lives living in fear. And the truth is, you can do that. It's okay. There is nothing wrong with not wanting to look stupid. Nothing wrong with that. I just choose not to live that way. I don't give a shit. It meant something to me. That butterfly on my shoulder of the tattoo of my second wife means something to me. It has meaning. That woman, that period of my life had meaning for me. My first wife has meaning because two wonderful children whom I adore came out of that. The relationship I am in now has meaning for me. Nine and a half years worth of meaning and we're not married. We stay because we fucking want to each day, all right? And if it ends, it ends. Thank you, thanks for the memories. And we'll hug, we'll kiss, and we'll cry, we'll grieve, and life goes on. But uh, so tattoos and therapy, I am pro-tattoo, but I'm not selling it for anybody else. It's your life. Live your own fucking life your way. All right, next question. I don't think I have, I've never written that story in any of my books. I have, I, I tell this story, you know, of my tattoos and the thinking behind it. But um, yeah, that was, that was, uh, that was tattoo therapy for me, telling you my story, Rob. Always something new in the show, Sven. <laughs> Always. Do you remember what it was Tuesday? No. <laughs> we were taping an episode of the show. Don't you remember the, the question? Somebody asked, we were doing a live episode, um, and it would have aired uh, like last week or two weeks ago, where somebody asked the question that said, basically, uh, my boyfriend is in a sexual relationship with his mother, something like that. Oh, boy, I had forgotten that, <laughs> and you brought it back. Thanks. <laughs> You guys, you got to understand how fun this is for us. And I, I hope it's fun for you guys. And I hope we loop you in on the, the fun. And because uh, life is serious, but it's also play. And, you know, one of my 
one great author that I love. You've probably never heard of him. His name is somewhat common, David Miller. He wrote a couple of books, um, The New Polytheism, but he also wrote a book called Gods and Games. And as you know, my background is in theology. I'm a former theologian. I've written several books in the field of theology, uh, former clergyman and world religions, and I have degrees in that and so forth. And David Miller wrote a little poem and he says, regarding having fun and playing while you're doing work like we're doing here, he says, taking fun simply as fun and earnestness in earnest shows how thoroughly thou none of the two discernest. In other words, if you think that fun is just always fun and, that, and, and work is always work and there the twain shall meet, you don't get it because work, can, it can be, is fun when you're doing what you love or play can be work. You know, and so it's the it's the intermingling of the two. What do you think of that one, Rob? Love what you do and you never work a day in your life. God bless you. Now make that rhyme and we'll turn it into a song. All right, next question. Here we go. Okay, here we go. This this cuts to it, man. This is so much of the work I do. This is so much of, of life right here. Um, whether you're the kid or you identify with a parent or both, what can I do to repair my relationship with my daughters? I thought I was a good mother, even though, and I don't know what comes after even though, but you've really said enough for me to sort of take this and run with it. What can I do to repair my relationship with my daughters? I thought I was a good mother. When I was uh, going through seminary and going through college and after seminary, and even once when I was working in uh, serving in church as a pastor, uh, I was a bartender <laughs> a lot and uh, waited a lot of tables in my day. And if I ever get thrown out of this business because I've offended somebody, I'll go back to waiting tables. I fucking love restaurant industry. My favorite people in the whole world, um, other than ER nurses and teachers. But anyway, here's the thing. When we would get done with a shift, very often we'd go out and we'd have beers or maybe we'd go out and have a bite to eat, um, waiting tables. You know, you get used to these people and they become your friends and so on and so forth. And one of the things I used to like when we would go out is when the chefs would come along. Why? Because I like meeting people who can do shit I can't do. Okay. And so I would pick their brains. And one of the things I heard regularly, and I worked in uh, high-end restaurants in a four-star hotel in uh, Beverly Hills, in, in Washington, D.C., in uh, restaurants in Minneapolis, Ohio, et cetera. Anyway, and one of the things, a refrain that I would hear, and I'd sort of poke around and they'd throw it out there. And that is something along these lines that Sven, some recipes are so delicate, some ingredients are so sensitive, or and some uh, creations, the chemistry of certain things can be so volatile, so temperamental that even a master chef on any given night can fuck it up. Okay. That, and, and, and here's the thing, Sven, may, let's say I just fuck up this one recipe. If that, re or let's say for three months running, I have in my recipe book to uh, only put in a quarter teaspoon of salt. And after three months, I realized, shit, when I put in a half a teaspoon of salt, it changes the recipe completely. It actually pops. But that, but then you got to realize, shit, for three months, I've been making this small yet powerful mistake. Well, what if during those three months, one of those dishes lands in front of the man with the biggest mouth in town? Or what if on that one night when you just blow the recipe completely or in a way such that it ruins it, it lands in front of the woman who's the uh, food critic for the LA Times or whatever, all of a sudden, that one small mistake I've been making for a long time or that one big mistake on that night, even though every other night that recipe pops, baby, that on any given night, that if it lands in front of the wrong person, that can have long-term negative ramifications for my restaurant, for my business, okay? And you're thinking, what the hell does this have to do with anything, Sven? It has to do with this. 
For as sensitive and temperamental and volatile and um, any recipe or any ingredient or any uh, chemistry of ingredients is, a child is infinitely more sensitive, temperamental, volatile, subject to the elements, subject to influence, subject to everything. Which means that on any given night, even a great parent can fuck up big time. And if it happens at the wrong time, it can have massive negative long-term ramifications for that child. If even a good parent, even a good person can make some small mistake repeatedly over a duration of time, it can have profound negative long-term ramifications onto that child. And there's the whole crowd that says, oh, fuck you. You got to be a tough guy. When you're 18, fuck your childhood. Quit blaming your parents. And to which I say, go fuck yourself. That is the dumbest shit I've ever heard. You clearly have no concept of the power of parental imprinting. And here's the thing. I also sort of say that same thing to the parents who believe they didn't make any bad mistakes. I provided, I love my kids. I, you know, I coach their sports and, uh, you know, they always had food you know, on the table and clothes on their back and a roof over their head and all this stuff. So you're, you're saying you didn't make any mistakes, no major mistakes, really. You're such a fucking pro at parenting that you didn't make any major mistakes that might've had long-term negative ramifications. I had clients in their seventies. I've had clients actually in their 80s. One of the very first people I counseled was an 80-something-year-old man whose wife had just died. You want to feel impotent? Walk into that situation as a 24-year-old. Okay. I've had clients in their 70s, 60s, 50s, 40s who we discover are still operating on some shit that happened in their childhood, messaging they received about themselves, things that were done, things that were offhand and stated. I have a, a good friend who says, you know, in the raising of my daughters, my daughter informed me that in the raising of my daughters, I would say to her, I don't have time to listen right now, I'm just driving. And the daughter remember actually, remember, remembers hearing that somewhat frequently. And the daughter said, I actually stopped talking. And both the daughter and the mom recall that in the earlier years, the daughter was a very chatty person. Mom, I stopped talking because you kept telling me to be quiet even though that wasn't the mother's intent. Mother was, you know, going through the toll booth on the highway or mom was, you know, you know, at work and, you know, couldn't take her call or, you know, whatever. So it's not, it's even a good parent, even a good person can make profound, and that would be an example, you know, the child hearing. I don't have time right now. I can't listen right now. And she may have come back later and listened, but the point is the child hears that small message and has long-term negative repercussions. The child loses their voice. So you asked the question, Mama Tracy, what can I do to repair my relationship with my daughters? I thought I was a good mother. You may very well have been a delightful mother. I don't, that's not necessarily in dispute. It's, it's like you're rendering an entire judgment on all of your parenting based on uh, a riff that may be happening now or some complaints that your daughters have about your parenting. Well, it would be naive to think that, no, I didn't make any fucking mistakes. There is no perfect parent. There is no parent that doesn't do harm. It doesn't exist. So how do you repair that relationship? You fucking own it. You can simultaneously still think of yourself as generally a good parent, but own your shit. I don't know, have you guys heard me say before that when we're in my 20s, I'm the youngest of six siblings, right? And this is back in like the fucking 80s when I'm in my 20s, right? And all my siblings, they're all older than me. So they were in their 20s and the 70s and 80s. And my parents were deliberate about saying, you know what, Let's, we'll listen. What did we do wrong? Talk to us. 
talk to us. And they would listen and they would apologize and mean it and change it if they hadn't already changed their behavior, whatever. And in my mom's final 10 years of life, she did it again. And in my mom's final year of life, she came to her children. Her children were, I'm in my 50s. My oldest brother is in his late 60s. And she comes to every one of us individually and says, if there is any rock, and you guys know my analogy from my book, you know, there's a hole in my love cup where I talk about when we harm a child or when we harm anyone, when we hurt anyone's feelings, it's like we're putting a rock into the this big burlap sack on their back. You put enough of those in there and you're carrying, five, carrying around a 500 pound bag of fucking rocks on your back. You wonder why you're depressed. And so my mom basically said, if, I, if there are any rocks left in that bag on your back that I put there, I want them back. I want them back. I put them there, I'm taking them back. If I cause harm, I want it back because when I'm dead, you won't be able to give it back to me. Now, she knew you can heal even though your parent uh, is passed but she wanted to own it so that we wouldn't have to. Now that's love. That's what you do, Mama Tracy. What can you do to repair your relationship with your daughters? All you can do is keep loving them. All you can do is back the fuck off if they tell you to back the fuck off. All you can do is apologize for what you, go make a list of everything you know you did wrong. Make a list. And whether you say it to them or you put it in writing and you apologize and you atone and you change your fucking actions while simultaneously allowing for the fact that they may, wanna, may not want to have a relationship with you right now. Simultaneously allowing for the fact that they may have a much longer list or a much different list and you've got to be open. Be open, be open, be open to the voice of the child. Otherwise, you are robbing the child of their voice at 17, at 22, at 38. And if you're robbing them of their voice now, that would probably indicate... You, this didn't just happen overnight. You've been robbing them of their voice all the way along and you wonder why they're upset. Something to think about. Now let's take a quick break. I'll be right back with more Badass Counseling. Hi, this is KC. There's an update from the Badass Counseling Desk. The audiobook version of the book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup, is now available exclusively only at badasscounseling.com. I counseled with Badass Counseling for about four months and Sven completely turned my life around. He kicked my butt. No shit. He made me do homework too, but I was so ready for a change that I just did it all. I'm telling you, he changed my life. Thank you so much, Badass Counseling. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. All right, and we are back with another lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. During the commercial break, uh, my lead producer, top dog, brains of the show. Um, no offense to you, Casey. Uh, she's really the brains. We just pretend. Uh, but uh, Casey, she, she's got a thick skin. But Rob turns to me and he says, Sven, you just spent 10 minutes on two questions. I said, yeah, but they're good questions. All right. He's Tw 20 minutes. 20 minutes. He's just poking me. All right. Playing around, playing around. All right. Flying around, flying around. Come on now. What you got for me? Come on. All right. How do you deal with the passing of someone you're in love with? You fucking welcome all of that pain. You cry your fucking eyes out, but it's not enough to just have the physical expression of the pain. It's like people say, Sven, I've been, I've been crying, crying, crying for a year since you know my dog died, since I lost this relationship, since whatever. Crying's not enough. It's like when people say, well, when I have stress, when I have anxiety, I go exercise. I get it out of my system. I get a good workout or I go do Krav Maja or however it's pronounced, Krav Maga, whatever. Or I go you know, kickboxing or I go on a long bike ride and that's how I get it out. Yeah, that gets out the physical aspect. 
of anxiety, the physical aspect of depression, the physical aspect of anger, et cetera. And that's necessary. And that can be very, very good. But you still haven't gotten out the actual messaging. You still haven't gotten out the actual emotion, putting it into words. Why does the counseling industry exist? Because putting it into words heals. Or as my mother said, for 93 years before she passed away, said it million times. I remember her first telling me this when I was 13. Why she was telling this to a 13-year-old, I have no fucking clue. Uh, but she did. She taught me everything else. Taught me how to sew, taught me how to garden, taught me how to darn my own socks, etc. And she said, Sven, remember. And she was a professional counselor, a suicide hotline counselor. She taught at the graduate level in the field of early childhood education, etc., etc. She said, Sven, always remember, naming the beast is half the problem. Naming the beast. And that sentence really has two meanings. Finding the name for the beast, finding what really happened, actually naming what the real truth is versus the truth I've been believing the whole time. Those are two different things, okay? So naming the beast, identifying the beast properly, what it really was that really fucking happened in this relationship, really fucking happened in my childhood, whatever it is, drilling down to the real truth. And that requires going deep, 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 deep. The other way of interpreting it is naming the beast is half the problem is that it's really naming the beast is half the solution, right? But mom said it as naming the beast is half the problem. She was smarter than me, so I'm running with it. All right, so how do you deal with the passing of someone you're in love with? You have to go in and you have to give words to your pain. You should be writing very long, full, impassioned, drunk with sadness letters to your deceased lover. That's what you should do anytime you've, you're experiencing loss. Anytime you're experiencing grief, you should be writing letters or if somebody hurt you or whatever it might be, writing letters that you do not send. Now, in the case of a death, obviously, you can't send it. Some people like to burn those letters. Some people like to keep those letters. And you should be journaling as well. Some people like to burn them. Or When I'm at the gym, I journal in between sets. So I'm simultaneously doing a physical release and I'm doing my mental release. I journal between sets. What do I do with the journaling? I don't keep my journals anymore. I did for decades and decades and it just became so cumbersome. I had notebooks and notebooks and notebooks. Um, and I had a big burning ceremony uh, a couple of times. Anyway, but when I'm doing it at the gym, either I tear them up, flush them down the toilet, or I stick them in my pocket, take them home, throw them in uh, my fire pit out back or what have you. Uh, but you need to be putting words, putting words, putting words through uh, your love. The question was, how do you deal with the passing of someone you're in love with? Put words to your love, put words to your anger at him or her for passing and whatever else you might be feeling and just keep flushing. That's the way we let go of anything. You have to keep flushing. All righty, fine humans. Give me your next question. What have you got for me? Come on now. Here we go. Oh, you, oh, wait, wait. Daniel says, I did send all letter and text. I did too. I did too. When my first wife divorced me, man, I sent every letter. I sent letters to my siblings saying, this is what's going on and this is what's going on. I think my siblings like, Fox fan, man, I got a life to live. All right, I, that's enough, please. But they didn't. They were graceful, very kind. Uh, but I sent all the letters to my lover and made all these promises, et cetera, et cetera. And it gets me humiliating. A few times letters were used against me in court in, in a you know relationship or whatever. The reason, that's kind of the reason I don't recommend in sending them because you don't need to send them. When I was sending them, I was hoping that this letter would be the one that got me my lover back. That's the problem. 
The goal, I mean, you can do that. If you wanna send these fucking letters, if you wanna give it to the person, great. But I tell people who are counseling with me, this particular letter, you cannot hit the send button. You cannot put a stamp on. You cannot call them up and, and read it to them and so forth. And they're just like, well, why? I mean, if I really had courage, I'd say it to them. No, that's not the point. This has nothing to do with the other person. This is about your healing. And if there's any chance that this letter, that you might give it to the person later, you know what you're gonna do? You're gonna edit and redact. You're gonna think about, well, you know, she may not, she, she never liked it when I spoke that way. So I need to say it this way. I don't give a fuck how they would receive it. I don't give a fuck. I don't want you to give a fuck about them receiving it or them getting it. All I want you to do is flush and keep flushing and flushing until the pain is out of you, until the trauma is out of you, until the love is out of you. The goal is not to get them or to tell them anything. The goal is to heal you. All right, this is a great question. This is a, a sort of a follow-up to the one where we were talking about the uh, the daughters pushing, pushing the mother away. Uh, like I said, you can be a great parent and yet the child experiences pain or the child, um, whatever, pushes you away. Okay, so here's a follow-up, but this is from someone else. When you own your shit and your adult, capital letters, kid, pushes you away despite my changing, how do I show love and support? The way you show love is if someone doesn't wanna be with you, don't, don't. Don't try to squeeze your way back in. And, and, I, and you're not, I know you're not saying that you're doing that, but you're asking my input. Very often what happens, the more we invest in something, the more our heart becomes invested in something. So if I invest in stocks on the stock market, I have somewhat of a heart attachment because my money is now attached to that company. The, every time you drive your kid to ballet lessons or soccer practice or take him out to the lake to go swimming or whatever it is, you're investing in that child. So then when that child wants to pull away, you're losing a part of yourself or it feels that way. And so what you're having to experience is grief and you got to go through the grieving process and you have to let that child go because that's a natural process. Do you realize that, that usually in, in the history of humanity, that usually happens right around what? Puberty, right? We begin to be able to think abstractly. It's that natural desire to individuate, to differentiate, to discover who I am apart from the parent. Well, that's a painful thing when you're used to controlling that kid or getting your love needs met from that kid or just investing in that kid. It's hard to let that go. It's hard when our own child doesn't want to do everything with us or doesn't want to text back or doesn't call us as much or would rather be with their friends. Or now your question when you own your shit and your adult kid pushes you away despite your changing, how do you show love and support? Um, by granting their wish. If they don't want to be near you, let it go. You've got to do your own grieving. And very often, and what I would ask you if you were my client, I would ask you a hard question. And I'd say, just be honest. And you know, there's no shame, no nothing. But the question I would ask you is this. Is it that you, is it strictly that you desire to show love and support to your child or is it that you want your child back? You want the restoration of the relationship. There had been a breach and you changed and you owned your shit and now you want to repair the breach. You want the reconnection, the fixing of the relationship. You want that relationship back. What percentage is that? In other words, you say, how do I show love and support? I've done all this shit. Now, how do I show love and support? And my question to you would actually be this. I want you to break it down into percentages. And you guys know I work with percentages. I, I believe in the power of, uh, of fixing percentages when we're trying to discern our real motives. What percentage in your saying, how do I show love and support? What percent is because I just want to support the child? And what percent is it because I want to have that relationship back? Now, very often uh, people say, and this may not be true in your case, I'm speculating, but it, very often when someone is honest, 
uh, they'll say, no, it really is. I really have changed. It's just about the kid. And I say, great, then leave him alone. And you can send him a card down and say, I love you, uh, but I'm you know, respecting your space or just be quiet and respect their space and trust that when they're ready, they'll come around because you've proven that you're listening to their request. You're proving that their voice matters. Now, but what also very often happens is people say, I want to do it for the kid, but I'm really doing it for myself. I want to repair the breach because we dig down deep and they admit, I want the relationship back because I want my love back from them. I want the relationship because they give me love and I miss getting love from them. I miss giving love to them, sure. But I miss, there is some element of they give me love too and I miss that relationship because it makes me feel dot, dot, dot. So I'm wanting the relationship back so that I can get something. You hear the problem there? See the difference if you've really healed your shit and I believe you have when you say you have to this person asking this question. I've healed my shit, but the adult kid pushed me away despite changing. How do you show love and support? Listen to them. If they don't want to be with you, don't be with them. Okay, but here's the thing. Is it that you just strictly want to show love and support or is it partly also, I want the relationship back because it makes me feel something, confirms my worth as a parent or makes me feel loved or I love it when they care about me and call and see how I'm doing. And that's natural. There's nothing wrong with that on one hand, but it says you have an underlying motive in wanting to repair the relationship, that it's not selflessness, that there's a measure of selfishness involved in your action. And it could be uh, that the child picks up on it. Your adult child sniffs that out that it's still about you. And if it's still about you, then it's still about you. And that's probably the reason that they, you know, created the breach in the first place and pulled away. So I encourage you to give the child what you want. And if you want to reach out every now and then and just say, I just want you to know I love you, but I do respect your space and just sending love your way. That's all it takes. Just reminding them of the love that I'm here. You don't have to even do that, but respect their wishes. That is how you confirm to them your voice matters. All right. Next question, you want a lover? <laughs> I think that's for you, Rob. Rob, you want a lover? Uh, no, thank you. I'm good. <laughs> okay. KC, do you want a lover? And she's shaking her head. No. Uh, me, uh, I would love to have a whole harem of lovers, but I'm madly in love with one woman right now. And so thank you for the offer. Very gracious. I appreciate that. Even though I know it was intended for Rob. Uh <laughs> <laughs> do I do virtual counseling? Yes, I do. Go to badasscounseling.com and click on the counseling page, read everything there. And I require all my clients to read at least half of the book. There's a hole in my love cup before I start counseling with them. It's 80% of my counseling method and it enables us to move much faster in session. All right. All right. Let's just address this one. Why can't you accept insurance? You charge $500 a session? Yes, I do. And let me tell you why. Because I, people don't know, I don't advertise this, but you asked a straight question, I'm gonna give a straight answer. I spend at least 40 to 50 hours a week working with the homeless in my city, in New York City, working with the drug addled, working with um, certain vets. And most often, especially with the homeless, and obviously it's free, all right? Uh, with vets often free or reduced rate. Um, do you know that I get roughly in any given month, I get close to, close to 75,000 reach outs to me. Instagram, direct messages, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, through the website. And you know what I do when I wake up at four in the morning because I'm just awake at four in the morning and my girlfriend's sleeping next to me? Do you know what I do? I literally turn it on and I try to answer people's questions. Do you know that I spent a lot of time just trying to help people. I was a pastor and my ethos is 
you know, you go where the need is the greatest. But I was poor for about 25 years and I'm 55 now. And I charge what I'm worth and there are people that pay it. And because they pay that work, that amount, I'm able to help a lot of other people. I don't get paid. We don't get paid for this podcast and unless we have a sponsor. And presently we do. We have, um, uh, well, right now in real life, but when this show goes up, it won't go up. But right now we have a sponsor, but you know, we don't get paid a lot of money. Rob next to me, he logs, I'd say 20 plus hours a week on this free podcast. Goodness of his heart. He's a retired dude with mad skills. Labor of love. Labor of love. We do this because we love it. All right? So my being able to charge people and help people who can afford it, who often run companies or at the tops of companies in, in, or uh, in academia or in politics or in Hollywood or what have you, the trickle-down effect of changing that person at the top is powerful because it has fallout. It, it affects so much. It affects... Uh, policy that they make in their company affects how their company is a steward in the community or in the world. Furthermore, it pays for me being able to do all this free shit for so many people. I've got like 700 whatever, 800 whatever videos free. TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, um, you know, all of them. I keep doing this shit for free. Why? Because I can get these other people to pay for it. All right, basically. All right. Plus, honestly, I'm going to get old, older and, you know, my hip's going to break or I'm going to slur my speech even worse than I do. I got to be able to pay for that. I'm not going to saddle my kids with that shit. All right, guys, what's next? How do you deal with loss of trust in a relationship? I'll tell you guys this. In my personal experience, first of all, loss of trust trumps loss of love or loss of in love. Like both my ex-wives, I still love them. Great people. I'm not really in touch with them. You know, my first one, I see a lot because we have kids, but um, I love them both. But the loss of in love, for me, is less brutal than loss of trust. If I can't trust you, and I'm not just talking about cheating. I'm talking about trust in the nature of who you are, trust in your word, trust in your integrity, trust that you're just in this fucking relationship. Are you in it 100%? And it's okay if you don't want to be. It's totally okay. Then depart. And we'll depart as friends, hug, kiss, you know, maybe we'll be friends later, but we'll depart kindly. If you don't want to be in this heart and soul, that's okay. But don't fuck with me if you're in it. Don't act as if you're in because that's lying and it's just bullshit. How do you deal with loss of trust in a relationship? If I'm going to be totally honest, you abort. If I lost trust, I would get the fuck out. If you can't trust the person, you're never going to feel safe. You're never going to want to fully open up. Why? You can't trust them. In my, the, the analogy for me in my counseling practice, I get the most extreme of the extreme. And I get people who've gone through therapy with a million other people and it hasn't worked. And one of the things that I tell people is that a therapist, and, and I'll get people who say, you know, last therapist said, I can't work with you. I don't know how to do that. Or last therapist says, man, you got problems. And it's, and just threw up their heart, you know, threw up their hands said, well, I can't deal with that, whatever. Part of what we need in therapy is really what we need in a, in a um, love relationship or a friendship. And in therapy, that for whatever reason, people see or trust or feel that, that I, in my work, am a vessel large enough to contain. Imagine a huge salad bowl made of wood with the wood tongs and you take your salad and cherry tomatoes and a little bit of blue cheese. Okay, a big, big vessel that the vessel that I am is large enough to contain your problems. I don't mean contain like keep it down. I mean, hold it. 
A therapist saying to a client, yeah, I don't know what to do with your problem. It is, you know, it's too much for me. Gee, shit, I don't know. Uh, take two aspirin, call me in the morning. I don't fucking know. That's a therapist conceding that my vessel is not large enough to contain your problems. Well, it's the same way in a relationship. It's the comfort of knowing that who I am is safe, that you are big enough person, that you are involved enough, that your heart is big enough and committed enough to contain all of me. But if I don't feel like you want to and can contain all of me and want that role, I'm gonna pull back from putting parts of me into that vessel. So if you don't have trust in a relationship, if I'm being just totally, and and I, I'm open to someone telling me I'm wrong, I'm open to you just throwing my uh, concept here, just toss it in the trash if it doesn't work for you. If you've lost trust in a relationship, your relationship's fucked, period, fucked, period, fucked. You might as well get out now. Because that just, that that I mean, you can stay in, but you have to understand the price of staying in. That trust may return, but it's gonna take years and years and years. I have people who, you know, people who say to me, Sven, you know, um, my wife cheated on me and it's been six years and I still I still don't trust her. Or why won't my wife get over it? I mean, shit, I cheated eight years ago. Or I cheated two years ago. It's like, <laughs> really don't understand the power of betrayal of trust. All right, but so it can return. I'm not disputing that. Trust can return to a relationship, but it's gonna take a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of time. And it's gonna take a lot of patience on your part, but it's also gonna take a lot of patience on the part of the other person because they're gonna want you to trust them sooner than you're ready to trust them. I guarantee it. They're gonna want your trust. Why don't you trust me? Why aren't you changing? Why won't you? Why won't you? It's gonna happen. It may not be happening now, but it's gonna happen because they want to trust sooner and you're just not ready. And in a way, when someone forces something, like when you try to force an idea on a teenager, right? What do they do? They become entrenched and they fight back merely because it's being forced on me. So if you're trying to force someone to trust you or push them to trust you faster, they're gonna become entrenched somewhere in them. They're gonna not wanna trust you because in a way, you're proving that you're not worthy of trust because it's still about your agenda. It's still about your speed. What about mine? Well, this doesn't make sense. You know, you should trust me now. It's been this long. Okay. You know what? You're free to leave, dude. I just don't trust you. You are free to fucking leave. And will it break my heart? Yes. Will I be angry? Yes. But I am not ready to trust you yet. And that's okay. And it's okay for that person to leave. It's okay. They have every right to leave. How do you deal with trust in a relationship? It can re restore, but it's gonna take a long time and it's gonna take you going in and doing your heavy inner work. All right, next question. This is why I end up stopping with all my counselors, Sven. They don't seem to want to help me open up. And you know, this is a this is a really interesting thought on therapy and I'm not a psychologist as you know, and um, but I've been doing this shit soul counseling for 30 years. I was a pastor, I was an emergency room chaplain at a level one trauma center for a brief time. And so I've just been doing this shit a long time. And for me personally, I have my style. You guys can probably guess what my fucking style is. And if you've listened to the counseling episodes that air on Thursday nights, you know of my podcast, you know what my style is, right? It's loving, but it's it's aggressive. Um, but there is counseling style. There are counseling styles that are much more passive where they just let the person talk and talk and talk. I don't believe in that. I don't believe in it at all because you're basically saying by you merely talking, you will solve your problems. Well, fuck, then what the fuck am I paying you for, dipshit? I direct, I give my input. I tell them what I think. Wait, your dad said that to you? Oh, fuck him. <laughs> They're like, and by doing that, oftentimes I'm giving voice that maybe they already feel that somewhere in them but my, and it feels good to hear me say it or it, it, it gives them permission to feel what they actually feel. 
And so uh, I totally get what you're saying in terms of, you know, that they didn't want to help open up. Yes, I believe in a proactive style of counseling. Now, everybody has their own different tastes and flavors, but I believe in active, getting in there, digging around. And I just tell them, listen, I'm going to interrupt you in, in the middle of stories. It's not out of disrespect. It's, we may come back to the story, but my brain has to go over there and we got to go now because I, I promised you results. So you have to trust that I know what I'm doing. I'm not trying to be a dick by interrupting you or by asking you this odd question. You just got to trust me. And then we go deep and we get results. All right. Next question, fine people. I love you guys. I love your questions. Rob, do you love these guys? Yeah, yeah. And your explanation there, that's how we get the name of the show, right? Badass Counseling. Badass Counseling, right. Uh Uh-huh. What can I do to heal my inner child so I can love myself? Uh, you just pitched, you put that softball right over the plate, didn't you? All of these, all 750 or 800 of the videos that I put up on, that are already up on all the platforms, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter. Twitter are only the short ones, the one, two minute ones, not the longer ones. YouTube, um, all of those should be journaling prompts in your own prompts. This, this today, this podcast All the questions should be prompts for you. You should be relating these questions, even though your child hasn't died or even though you didn't get fired from your job and that's the question I'm asking, you should be able to find yourself in each one of these questions and you should use it as a prompt in your own journaling. You should use it in your own inner work that you do on your own to go in and and how does this apply to me? Um, I wrote the book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. This will take you through the process of healing your inner child. That's the whole point of all of my work. This podcast that you're all offering me these questions on or that my listeners around the world are listening to, this free podcast exists to help you heal that inner child, to help you get out all of the pain, the fears, and the bullshit beliefs that you've been taught about yourself, all right? So all of these tools are intended to just hold your hand and lead you into that dark cave that you've been running from your entire life. All right, here we go. This is from over on Facebook. How do I help my cousin who lost his 23-year-old son in a tragic 18-wheeler accident? Terry, our hearts go out to you first and foremost. Want you to know that, all right? And just want you to know that we're thinking of you and sending love, sending love to uh, your cousin and the family. How can you help your cousin? Well, let me tell you what they did in the old days. Uh, in small towns or in uh, religious communities, you know, people that you knew from church or just in small towns or in cities or in the old days. You know what they do? You know what I'm going to say. Rob, you want to take this one? What would they do in the old days if someone had something go hard or if the or if the wife, was, you know, back in the 50s, if the wife had to go in for surgery, what would the neighbors do or what would the friends do? The community would all come together. That's right. That's right. They'd show up at your front step with uh, a casserole hot dish, as we call them in Minnesota. Still do that. Still do that. That's right. And they would be there. And let me tell you, one of the hardest things, as a former pastor, I've done a lot of funerals in my day and a lot of weddings, and I still do them. And one of the hardest things is when someone dies. A funeral is hard. Wedding's easy. Congratulations. Hey, have a drink. You know, but a funeral is hard because very often we don't know what the fuck to say. Or after a death, we don't know what to say. Or it's easy at a funeral, but then what do you do a week later? What do you do a month later? And that's when all that support can trickle off. But what you can do for your cousin, you ask, how do I help my cousin who lost his 23-year-old son in a tragic 18-wheeler accident? You can show up. You can say, hey, I just want to take you to dinner. And you can offer and say, you know, how are you? And then listen and just listen. And maybe they'll say, I don't want to talk about it. Or maybe they'll just cry. And you've got to be okay with those tears. You've got to be okay sitting in it, not trying to fix it. All right. And this is critical. And this is critical in parenting. This is critical in grieving. 
Is someone lost of a relationship, death of a your cousin's uh, child, adult child? And it's simply this. Uh, you've heard me say it before, and this is one of the gems from my own mother. And she used to say about children, but it's about, true about anyone who's grieving. It's true across all platforms in life that children want to be heard, not fixed. Children want to be heard, not fixed. And it's very often true in adulthood that we just want to be heard. We want our voice to be heard. We want to get our pain out. We want to express. The Latin of express is X is out, press is to push. We want to push out the pain. Crying does that. Talking about our problems over and over and over again, though it may seem boring to you, it's cathartic for me. So what you can do is when you've got to work on your own shit of how perhaps how uncomfortable you feel when your cousin is crying or when your cousin is just sitting there and numb, that you're, the impulse is to want to try to fix somebody. Why? Because that makes me feel good. Then I don't feel so nervous just sitting here. It's weird sitting here. What am I supposed to do? What do I do with my hands? Okay, you don't know what to do. And so you've got to, in your own personal work, be flushing out your own anxieties, but to be present to the person, to listen to their questions, to let them cry, to show up and don't stop showing up because there's the support for the first month, but the real lovers, the real friends, the real neighbors are the ones that show up six months later or the ones that just call up out of the blue and say, hey, do you want to go for a walk? Let's talk. Or how you been? And then listen and just listen. That's what you can do because that's love. It's being present, to be truly present, not to go on my agenda of wanting to fix, uh, not sitting at home saying, God, I really feel bad for them. It's showing up, it's being on their agenda and giving them time and giving them room to grieve because this is gonna take a long time and it's gonna be painful. Sometimes it helps to ask, do you wanna be heard, helped, or a hug? I love that from Rob. Heard, helped, or hugged. That's wisdom from my wonderful, wonderful sidekick here. I like it. All right. I'm going to take one more question. We haven't gotten before and I like it. I get it in counseling and I had to deal with this in my own life. And I think we've all hit it at different points. Advice for apathy. I'm going through your book now, Sven. Thanks for your content, but advice for apathy. Um, you know that one of the books that I recommend that is not one of mine, one of the top books, and I use this method every day in my own life, um, is called the Sedona Method. And the Sedona Method was created by Lester Levinson back in the 50s, 60s. And then the book was written by Hale Dwosk and became popular. He was on Oprah, all that shit. And basically what it does is it teaches you a very simple method for going in, identifying whatever feeling is, going inside, being aware. What am I feeling right now? That guy just cut me off on the highway. Fuck you. I'm feeling angry, okay? Or my girlfriend broke up with me. I'm feeling sad. Whatever your feelings are, identifying them. And then he has a simple little method that go you go through. I have no idea what the logic of the method is. I don't give a shit. All I know is that it works. It's not a concept book. It's called the Sedona Method. Anyway, what he has in that book on page 106 and 107, or no, 105 and 106, is a list of nine categories of feelings. He categorized them. So there's the category of anger, there's the category of sadness, there's the category of fear, and there's the category of apathy, which is the ba most base level. And basically, and now we're getting off of his book, but the point is, where I'm going with this, is apathy is when all the other feelings really have shut down. Apathy is lethargy. Apathy is living deadness. I, I'm dead inside, Sven. I'm just, I don't care about anything. Um, and, and then he has a list of 25 other words, to, of other words that are feeling words that are versions of apathy. So like under, if you were, if were sadness, there are different versions. Well, there's blue, there's melancholy, there's sad, there's grieving. Those are all different flavors. Each has a little different flavor under anger. There's rage, there's anger, there's hate. 
Um, all of those, each has a different flavor. Angry isn't the same as rage, is it? Right. Well, same way with apathy. So you say advice for apathy. Yeah, you have so much feeling locked inside of you, down in that vault deep inside of you where you've been stuffing your own feelings and you have not brought them out and they are there. You think you don't have feelings, you actually have a mountain of feelings and they are inside of that vault and what has to happen is you have to begin to unlock that vault. Well, how do I do that? You start with one feeling that you do feel. Maybe it was this morning when that guy cut you off in traffic on the way to work. Maybe it's, you know, you're feeling you know, feeling kind of nervous that uh, your girlfriend might be leaving you. Maybe it's, you know, you're feeling frustrated because my fucking grass won't grow and I love having a green lawn. Okay, whatever. Whatever you can identify as one feeling. I don't give a fuck how small it is. Or if you want to go the other direction, identify something so big in your life, in your entire memory bank, whether it was last month when your cousin's 23-year-old son died or when it was way back in childhood uh, when, you know, your parent would yell at you or when your parents would yell at each other. And you and you can identify a feeling, whatever it is, small or large, present or past. Identify one feeling that you know you feel and let it up. Welcome it, allow it, and feel it. And then get out a pen and paper and start writing. Write about it. What am I feeling right now? Where is this coming from? Why do I feel this? And it's okay to feel this. What's going on inside of me? Start pulling apart. Start pulling the meat off the bone to understand it, okay? And then, you know what happens when you do one? Another one is gonna come. And it may come in two days or it may come right on the heels of the one you just did. What you're doing there is you're pulling out one by one memories out of the vault that holds all of your past memories that have emotional charges. You're pulling one memory out and you're decharging it. Then another one is naturally gonna come. Then another one. And what you're fundamentally telling your soul is, I'm ready. I'm ready for the next one. And so as if you're in apathy, you are so laden, with so many feelings that you are locked away that you're not feeling anything except the tiniest little blips. Start with the tiniest little blips. Get my book, there's a hole in my love cup, I walk you through it, but the bottom line is you've gotta begin to unlock that vault. Basically what's happening is every one of those feelings, negative feelings that you've had in your past is, was one more rock into the burlap sack on your back and you now have a 500 pound bag of rocks on your back and it's dragging you down and you can't even get off the couch. All you want to do is smoke weed or all you want to do is booze or all you want to do is, uh, you know, gaming all the time or overworking, yeah, dragging yourself to work because you're just so numb inside. Whatever it is you're using to numb yourself, you're numb. And the way you become unnumb is to begin. Journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And you have to begin the process of unlocking, welcoming, allowing feelings one by one. Well, fine people, guess what just happened in the studio? Our studio cat. This is Rob's studio. It looks out over a beautiful little lake and it's green and so forth. But Rob has a studio cat. What's the cat's name again, Rob? Carly. She was found in a car before we adopted her. <laughs> is that is that seriously how you named the cat? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jumped into a guy's car and he called animal control and that's uh, that's how we got it. And so you named it Carly after because, the- because of that, yeah. Could have been Lexus, but no. <laughs> Oh, that's a pretty name, Portia. It was Alexis. It was yeah. Alexis. That's what All they right. tell us. You could be calling her Lexi right now, yeah. but no, she nope. is Carly. Yep. Or, you know, it could have been, I mean, car is pretty generic. Instead of Lexus, uh, you could have gone with vehicle. You could be calling her Vihi. Mm. But no. No. Um, no. Uh, so Carly the cat has come out of her perch. She's been scared of me since we started this show, started taping our show seven, eight months ago. And uh, she is only 
now three times come out and it's just been in the last week. So she's growing more comfortable. But I think Carly is saying she needs attention. Uh, Daddy, Rob, and Sven and Casey, she needs attention. Stop being nice to all those people. Start being nice to me because I am the cat. So, my fine people, thank you so much from Camas, Washington to Belgium, from Wagga Wagga, New South Wales to Ville Platte, from Spartanburg to Moorhead, Minnesota, and all countries around the world where you're tuning in. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Badass Counseling Show. Rob, I'm going to ask you first, any last thoughts? We have covered it and then some. And then some and some more. And we're so happy. Thank you so much for tuning in. On behalf of Rob the Rocket, on behalf of KC, have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day.